right, so we're looking at identity. If you were here last week, you would have met Pedro Erasmus, Pastor Pedro Erasmus, who was very gracious in stepping in uh, at the last moment, and I thought he did a great job. Um, I don't know about the second service, but I tuned into the first, and I felt like there was, for any heart that was open, there was something to catch. And uh, as I think I might have mentioned once or twice before, he is someone that has helped me over the last seven and a half years to more deeply uh, appreciate and experience, so beyond knowledge, actually just experience the love of God, which I think is the, it's the anchor of our identity. If we can find our identity in God's love, not just in God like as a big, broad, vague picture, I mean in God's love. If we can actually find our identity in being loved, wanted, uh, cherished, guys, that's a big deal. It shifts a whole bunch of stuff. Identity matters. I think that way too often we are tempted to get distracted by our issues and we want to resolve our issues, which is not a bad thing, but too often we try and address the issue instead of the issue beneath the issue, which is our identity. When we, when we see who we are, when we know who, we've been cre- who, who God has created us to be, when we know how He sees us, which by the way, I, think, I, don't, think any, I don't think a single person sitting here would be able to perfectly see themselves through God's eyes. Now, that hopefully doesn't discourage you. I'm hoping that that'll prompt you and invite you to continue prioritizing God's presence where you actually get to be with Him and and do it in such a way. So the way we spend time with Him, it allows Him to actually also from time to time give us a glimpse of how He sees us, who He sees you as being. Identity affects everything, everything. It affects our value system, it it affects our worldview, it affects our self-worth, it it affects, by the way, when I say self-worth, I don't just mean, you know, be a better you and and love yourself. There's an element of that that's true, but then there's also part of that that can become a form of idolatry. But but I'm saying there is an actual, healthy, godly, biblical self-worth, which means that you're not going to just allow people to inappropriately, not that there's any appropriate way, but inappropriately exploit and abuse and mistreat you. Abuse is simply the misuse of anything or anyone based on its original purpose. When we have no self-worth, you will allow yourself to be treated like someone that has no worth. It affects our self-worth. I believe that our identity also affects, in fact, it ultimately affects our destiny. Who you are, who you see yourself as being. And the more we discover who God has made us to be and His plan for us. And and it's not just about getting stuff done. Far more important than that is who He wants us to become. When we see who God has actually created us to be, the overflow of that is that we will do what He wants us to do. When we are secure in Him, so again, we use language around you like being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus would do. That order really matters because if I will actually find myself in Him, if I will find my identity and security in Him, it will change the fruit that is being born in my life, because fruit is formed, it's not faked. I mean, you can fake it, but not for long. It's it's formed, it's not forced. It's it's formed automatically, organically, as we presence ourselves with God consistently enough, routinely enough, in our everyday coming and going. And then a natural outworking of that is that we will do what he would do, what Jesus would do if he were me. 
given these set of circumstances, given, given my responsibilities, given my personality, given my temperament, given, given the gifts and the limits that God has given me. Do you know that it's not only gifts that are from God, but also limits? Again, you see, if we have the right identity and if we're securing God, then we'll be able to push back against the narrative that says you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. Guys, that's, that's an ugly word. That's what that is. That's like, like that's, just, that's just so weird. You can't, you can't, we can't all win the 100-meter race at the Olympics just because I want it badly enough. There are lots of people that want it badly. But the other million don't make it to the Olympics. So, so, so there are elements of gifting, wiring, personality, and even limits help us to discern, okay, maybe that's not something I need to actually be giving the rest of my energy to. Identity influences everything. Identity determines our destiny. Last week, <coughs> Pedro touched on the passage from Ephesians 1 verse 5, which says that God decided in advance to adopt you, to adopt me, to adopt us into his own family. In other words, he, this was his desire. He planned this in advance, bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. Like he doesn't have someone pressuring him, whipping him, making him feel bad enough to like, you know, okay, let's adopt another one into our family. No, no, he wanted to. Even our ability to accept that truth will shift so much of our perspective. You mean God actually wants to adopt me? Like he actually wanted me? He wants me? I'm wanted? I'm not just tolerated? I think for many of us, and, and I'm, I'm very aware that people are in different places in their journey with God, <clears throat> whether you're exploring or whether you've been in a relationship for many years, I think, I think all of us would have some form of narrative in our minds that has a varying degree of truth to it. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we slow down enough, if we reflect enough, for many of us, that'd be a hard truth to actually accept that He, he wanted to. He, we are wanted wanted, desired, and it gave him great pleasure? Like, really? I mean, that's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that he wanted to adopt us into his family. Now, we can reject that adoption. Absolutely. I want to be clear. We are the variable. We can reject that, and and then we're going to experience the, the implications of that, but he wanted to adopt us, and it actually gave him great pleasure. That's why it matters how we see ourselves through God's eyes because it is who before do. Who before do. Who we are will affect what we do. We took a brief look at this over Easter Sunday at the idea that, that when we realize the price that's actually been paid for us, when, when we realize the worth that has been placed on us, it has implications. Again, it affects our identity, which then affects how we live our lives, how we respond, how we trust. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, <clears throat> this is Paul, the, one of the early church leaders, the apostle, who wrote that you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, I'm very aware that for some people that thought might be offensive. Again, we're at different places in our journey. I'm just reading scripture. We have been bought 
with a high price. Now, we have a choice whether or not we want to go with the one who bought us, but he has bought us with the highest price. That is Jesus' life. That's what we remember and celebrate over Easter. But now, if we understand that, then that has implications. So, So let me read a few verses back to give us some context for that verse that we just read. Going to verse 15. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are uniting to one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run. In other words, if this is what we understand, then run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. In other words, if we understand this context, if we understand the fact that our identity is found in Him, that we have been purchased at a high price, that He wanted to adopt us, that it gave Him pleasure, when we, when we understand that, well, then we hand over the ownership of our lives to God. Every part of it. Every, this is just an example of how we surrender our sexuality to God, but, but every part of our lives, our finances, how we treat people, everything becomes surrendered to, and by the way, we will find our security in whatever or whomever we surrender to. That's where our security is. That's why, it's, that's why we become so insecure when people disapprove or don't like us or gossip because to some extent we are surrendered to their views, to their opinion. Or, or if I'm surrendered to the security that comes from having uh, some kind of financial plan that, that is more or less bulletproof and water, you know, waterproof, then, then I'm going to be insecure when, when that is somehow challenged and starts to fall apart. Whatever we surrender to is where we're going to find our security. Moses, fairly well-known character in the Bible, allowed his perception of his identity, in my opinion at least, to actually reject his destiny. His perception of his identity caused him to reject the destiny, or at least to try. If you know the story, he eventually surrendered. But yes, like, I don't think God's ever had to work so hard before. (laughs) Take a look at Exodus chapter 3. In case you're not aware of the background, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their generations. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them, Joseph, was sent into Egypt as a a slave. He eventually became second command in Egypt and helped rescue uh, his family uh, from famine. They then grew to a few million people over the next uh, 400 years in Egypt, okay? But now they became slaves, and, and Pharaoh and, and all of the slave drivers have been oppressing them brutally, horribly. They were machines, that's it. You work seven days a week as long as you possibly can. You, you, they were, they, there was no identity as sons and daughters of God. And so it's in this context that, that even as Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, discovers that that the Israelites are becoming a little bit too powerful. He then issues out an edict to basically murder every child under the age of two. Moses is spared. His mother puts him in, into like a basket, sends him down a river. Pharaoh's <clears throat> daughter finds him, then uses Moses' sister to find Moses' mother to then actually nurse him. I mean, it's all a bunch of coincidences, of course. And, and so she lands up influencing him in his formative years, and 
Moses, God protects Moses in the very home, the very palace of the man who was trying to murder him, okay? And, and somehow, through that process, over the next 40 years, not only did he get to experience the education and the wisdom and the worldview of the Egyptians and the best that Egypt, which was the most powerful nation of the world, could offer him, but he was also influenced formatively by his mother, where she must have been whispering into his into his ear and ultimately into his soul, some sense of destiny that God's going to use him to deliver his people. And so one day when Moses is 40, he tries to deliver his people, and it doesn't work out well. And so he runs away, and he gives up on his destiny for the next 40 years, literally wandering around, well, you know, in, in the, he's working as a shepherd in the wilderness, for 40 years. Now, again, we can argue, was it a waste of time or was that God preparing him to then lead the people for the next 40? I'd say probably more the latter. But the beginning of God calling him back to his original purpose, which, by the way, is what I'm hoping some people will experience through this series, that regardless of discouragement, regardless of distractions, regardless of deception, that God actually wants to bring us back to his original intention back to the destiny that he has. So Moses is shepherding sheep and then sees a bush in the distance that's on fire, which isn't as out of the ordinary as what we think it would be. What was out of the ordinary is that it didn't burn out. So that, this gets Moses' attention. He then goes up to the bush. God tells him to put his, you know, take his sandals off because he's standing on holy ground. So I think his sandals are off and his knees are probably shaking. And he's like, okay, what's up? This is where we pick it up in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 3. This is, this is God telling Moses that he's heard the cries of his people and that he's calling him to deliver them. Verse 10, now go for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Now, objection number one. Verse 11, Moses protested to God. Look at who he focuses on. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? It's his identity. Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answers him. By the way, notice that God doesn't tell him who he is as much as he says who he is. God says, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God at this very mountain. Objection number two. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Objection number three. We move over to chapter four, verse one. But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? You see, again, he feared people more than God. Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground. The Lord told him, so Moses threw it down. It turns into a snake. Moses jumps back. Verse four, then the Lord told him, reach out and grab the tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it and turned it back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord <coughs> told him. Then, you, then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really has appeared to you. Rejection number four. But Moses, look at this word, pleaded with the Lord. How many of you know that you would be running out of patience by now if you were God? Hey, it's like, like you just zap him 
and find someone else, right? For the fourth time, Moses pleads with the Lord. I'm not very good with words. I never have been. I want you to remember this because we're going to come back to this in a few moments at the end of the message. I am not very good with words. This is something he believes. This is his identity. I never have been. Again, please just let that sink in for a moment. Moses is saying, I'm not good with words. I never have been. And I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me. So he's not arguing that God has spoken to him. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses. Like God starts getting a little bit cheeky. Uh, Who makes a person's mouth? Is how I would say it. That would be my tone, okay, if I was responding to the fourth objection. Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, go! I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. Rejection number five, verse 13. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. Ever felt that insecure? Then the Lord became angry. I'm like, wow. I mean, God takes long to get frustrated. All right, he said, what about your brother Aaron? And some of you know the rest of the story where he offers to use Aaron as his spokesperson. Moses' identity almost robbed him of his destiny. And by the way, this isn't just about finding self-actualization and just, just being you know, the best version of you and you be you, and, and Moses was going to miss out on that. No, no, his destiny was about so much more than himself. His destiny was about millions of other people, generations of people. That's why you and I think way too superficially when we think that our identity and our destiny is just about us. That is a very small world. That is a very small uh, perspective when we think it's just about, okay, maybe I'll miss out on something. You have no idea what your influence on people at work or people at school or on your grandchild or on a neighbor, you, you have no idea the ripple effect, the, the destiny that God actually has for us. And so he was distracted, he was discouraged, he was deceived by what he thought of himself and, I believe, what he thought other people thought of him. He was so afraid of what other people would think of him. Which brings us to the second truth of this morning, and that is that our identity is determined by the designer. If identity determines destiny, I want to make it abundantly clear that I am convinced to my bones that our identity is found in, is determined by our designer. And again, for some of us, maybe many of us, that's like, yeah, yeah, sure, I agree. But for some of us, that needs to sink in. It needs to sink in that we are who God says we are. Because, because there is a narrative which, for many of us, sounds fairly recent, like maybe over the last 10 years, 15 years maybe, but it's actually been around for hundreds of years, this idea of you be true to yourself. You be you, boo. You speak your truth, which, is, which to me is just such a weird, I don't mean any disrespect to people, because I think a lot of the time I, I think I know what they mean when they say like, but then let's rather say just tell the truth. Not your truth. You can't have a truth and me have a truth and then be two different truths. And that term, be true to yourself, ultimately originated, by the way, a little over 400 years ago by William Shakespeare in his play Hamlet. 
You know that? So it's not just some modern celebrity, you know, who's, who's, who's woke and, you know, very clever. No, no, this was, and, and do you know who it was that actually said this? It wasn't the king, it wasn't the wise man, it was Polonius, the fool. Maybe you've heard statements like, the heart wants what the heart wants. And again, we can relate to that, I think, because for all of us, there'd be this thing, yeah, of course, like, like I want what I want, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to want that. That was originally quoted a little over 30 years ago in an interview with Woody Allen, who was 56 at the time, and came out as having an affair with his stepdaughter, who was 21, who he later married, Mia Farrow's adoptive daughter. He's like, the heart wants what the heart wants. That can't be okay. It, it, so, so here's my question. Which you must you be true to? Because there's more than one you. Believe it or not. Okay, simple illustration, right? If, if, if ever you go to the shops, I don't know if you've ever had those days where you go to the shops with a certain intention and there's a certain you that arrives at the shop. But then there's another you that starts to rise to the surface when you see some of the nice snacks and treats that are on offer. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe while you are walking with said treat from the pit of hell to the till, you then, you then catch a glimpse of men's health or women's health, and there's a you that really wants to look like that airbrushed, digitally perfected body on, you know, with the ripped abs and all this. It's like, there's a you that wants that. Now, all of a sudden, you have two yous that are fighting each other. And so you buy the magazine while you're eating the treat and reading through the air workout, right? So I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just asking you, don't challenge anyone else. I'm saying to you, which you do you want to be true to? Because there is more than one you. Our strongest desires are often not our deepest desires. Just because I have a strong appetite, just because I have a strong desire for something, doesn't mean that it's my deepest desire. I do believe, I am convinced, that underneath all of our other desires, we are aching for God, we are aching for peace, we are aching for joy, we are aching for love. But we are, we are, in so many cases, responding to the superficial desire. So we're, so we're looking for dopamine more than serotonin. We're looking for the next hit, something that's going to make us feel good for a moment, not realizing that often it's a delayed gratification, often it's a discipline of desire that actually leads to contentment, peace, love. So I'm just acknowledging that, that myself and yourself we all have more than one self. Yeah. We, all have, we all have conflicting desires. And unless we keep coming back to the identity that God has planned for us, who God has created us to be, we are going to keep chasing after the wind. And yes, absolutely, we're going to find relief, we're going to find moments of stimulation or escape or whatever, because these things are real, these things do offer something, but ultimately, long-term, it's over-promising and under-delivering. But if we will find our identity in God, and not just, not just this idea that you can just be whoever you want to be, or you be true to yourself, or you, you know, the hard wants what the hard wants, yes, we can agree on all of that. 
But let's agree that there's more to that story and that our identity is ultimately found in God. Now, maybe we would love to have a physical meeting with God and this loud, booming voice telling us certain things, but that doesn't happen. It's very rare that that happens. In some cases, you might need help. In other cases, it might be legit, but I'm just telling you, that's not, that's not the norm. What is the norm is as we allow our minds and our hearts to be washed by the Word of God, by time with God, and slowly but surely, over an extended period of time, we find our hearts being strangely drawn and formed into who God has created us to be. But just so you know, if you're wrestling over your identity, which I imagine a lot of people are, we've just, a lot of us have just become numb to it and maybe we're not even that conscious of it anymore. I want to tell you that you're in good company. Some of you know the, the beginning of the story of Jeremiah where God calls him. Reading from verse 5, it says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. That's a powerful thought, by the way. And I think that that's true, not just for Jeremiah, but for every single person. Just because we are maybe walking far from his purpose doesn't mean that he didn't know us before he formed us. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Now Elijah's pulling a little bit of a Moses. Oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. The Lord replied, don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people. For I will be with you and will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then the Lord reached out. I love this. Just, just picture this in your mind. He reached out and touched Jeremiah's mouth and said, look, I've put my words in your mouth. I'm just telling you that when God creates you, when he destines you, when he connects you, it's not about what you're able to do in and of yourself. It's about God. It's about what he's put into us. And that's going to look different for different people. That is why it's the enemy's tactic to get us to compare and compete. And just so you know, in case you're thinking, well, that's great for Moses, that's great for Jeremiah, maybe you know some of the other stories in the Bible where people were called. I want to, I want to just quickly show you in the New Testament how this is true for everyone. After going on a bit of a rant about the grace of God, the kindness of God, how we are saved only by grace, uh, not of any good work that we could do. Paul then goes on to say in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that we are God's masterpiece. Some English translations say work of art. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. You are who God says you are. Our identity determines our destiny. The designer determines our identity. And final truth, number three, and this is the bad news, is that our identity is attacked by the deceiver. Your enemy, my enemy, in my opinion, 95, if not 99%, of his strategy, his tactic against us, is deception. It's not about making you gross or dirty or doing ugly things. It's, I mean, that's, that's, that's some of the fruit of that. But that's not the big thing. The big thing <clears throat> is to deceive you, to deceive me. And by the way, the most powerful truths, sorry, the most powerful lies are the ones that have an enormous amount of truth in them. So you fail at something. You've, you're disappointed about something. You've done something wrong. Well, 
The most powerful truth is going to be acknowledging that in high definition and then just twisting the last little bit to turn a failure into shame. The difference between failure and shame or remorse and shame is that remorse is something I feel towards something I've done. Shame is about how I feel about myself. It's, it's, when, it's when I identify myself with my failure. When Jesus warned Peter that he was going to fail, he said, don't let your faith fail. Peter, I've already prayed for you. You're going to fail. He's like, you think, Peter, you're going to fail. But I've already prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Because he knew that far bigger than him failing was him actually failing in his faith, in his identity, <clears throat> in his destiny. We have a deceiver who wants to use deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires, and we all have them, and unfortunately, they are normalized and reinforced in a sinful society. That's why it's so convincing and compelling, because it is normalized in the world around us. Jesus said the following in the last half of John chapter 8, verse 44, when he says, speaking of Satan, the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In fact, one of the options for me for a title for the sermon was, Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> I want you to think about that. Next time you're wrestling over a thought, who does this sound more like? Is this leading to life? So yes, there's, there's a conviction. There, there's nothing wrong with appropriate guilt. By the way, there should be appropriate guilt towards doing something that's hurt someone else. But, but that shouldn't bring shame and condemnation where that element of truth paints over everything about who you are. And you're now unlovable, unworthy. You're disqualified for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that there aren't certain consequences. Yes, there are certain... Okay, <clears throat> this is a, a, a horrible example, but, but, but this is just for us to appreciate the tensions that we... If you're someone that has a problem... You, you wrestle over an attraction to younger cho to, to children. One of the real consequences of that is that you should never be working with kids, right? So, so that is an appropriate limit. That is an appropriate consequence. But does that mean that if you're trying to see God and please Him in your life, that you can't do anything else? I know it's a terrible example. But do you know that there are people that have been abused by people that were abused by people that were abused? And so everything in this world would tell them that, that, that you... I was reading an article the other day. Let me not tell you what, that, what I was reading the other day. It's not about this. Just other hectic stuff. The point I'm trying to make is that, see, even we are tempted to feed that narrative of you should just die. Because that's effectively what we're saying. We're saying if you, if you cannot do... If you are your failure, if you are your weakness, if you are your one desire, and there are a whole bunch of others, we are saying, you might as well just die. And that is not how God looks at people. I have, I have spoken to more than one person who, who with agony and humility, and it's, you can imagine the, the level of humility and vulnerability it takes to admit to this struggle, it, 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 it's one thing to talk about these things, it's another thing to to actually engage with a person, with a living human being who's saying, I don't want this. This is what happened to me. This has sparked something in me. I don't want to be that. Help me. You don't want to write that person off. 
and neither does God. So I'm just telling you, it's a lie. If you take, if you take an element of guilt or conviction and you allow that to become your whole life narrative. Now, going back <clears throat> to Moses. Remember we, we read earlier how, he was, how he's telling God, he's trying to convince God that he can't speak. He's never been able to. He can't now and he never can. Let's take a look at a record in the book of Acts in the New Testament. This was being said by Stephen, who was the first martyr. He was literally stoned to death just shortly after giving this brief history about Israel. He says the following about Moses. Moses was educated, this is Acts 7 verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech. Okay. Tradition, the records are, no, no, Moses was powerful in speech. That leads me to think that he believed a lie. Is it possible that God would have suggested Aaron first if Aaron was God's first prize? Is it possible that you and I and many others now hear this in the good sense, not the bad sense, are not God's first choice for what he's called us to do. What I mean by that is that he's called others and they've said no because of a sense of identity and the next person has said no and they've disqualified themselves and they've given up because they don't believe that God could do what God says. I think that Moses believed a lie. Goes on, verse 23. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So this is Moses trying to step into, I think, what he thought was his destiny. He came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Listen to the next phrase. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. Maybe you've been discouraged by people not realizing that you're God's gift to them. I mean, that's a little bit facetious, but I'm actually being very serious. I think one of the most discouraging things for Christians is when they feel unappreciated. We may, at some, on some level, with some language, say, God, use me, and then get really angry when we feel used. Moses assumed that they would realize that God had sent him. They didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker, so he tries again. Many said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us, he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. I wonder how many of us, and the team can come up, are living as foreigners in the land of destiny that God has actually planned for us because we've been disappointed at some stage, we've been discouraged at some stage, we've allowed deception to become real at some stage. And so even though we're still present, we're actually living like foreigners because we're not walking in the identity and the plan that God has for us. Now, I wish that I could 
spell out for you exactly what that is for you in your life? We can't. It is, I'm telling you right up front, it's a journey. It is a journey that involves surrender. It's a journey that involves patiently persevering in growing in a relationship with God. And by the way, it involves trying stuff. And it involves a bit of failure. And it involves perceived failure. It involves stepping out of your comfort zone. You can be safely assured that God will almost never consciously, like if, he, if, if God's going to like speak to you and give you a huge breath of faith, it is basically never going to be within your comfort zone. Because then we don't need God. It's going to be stepping out of your comfort zone. It might be stepping out of familiarity. That doesn't mean that you're stepping out of gifting and that kind of stuff. But it's often going to be to a level that's like, God, if you don't turn up, God, if you don't help us, this is going to, this is going to fail. This is going to be messy. This is going to be ugly. Man, I hope, I hope that for some of us today, there is some directing of our thoughts, some reminding of whispers that God has, has uttered to us in the past, we, we, where we would dare to take some of that stuff back to Him. And, and here's our biggest challenge. Busyness, speed, and distraction. That is, that is the biggest enemy of us actually doing something with the message I've just shared. Because it actually takes time. It takes some time to go home this afternoon or this evening before you go to sleep or maybe getting up a bit earlier tomorrow morning and to actually just sit with God and say, God, is there anything that you're wanting to bring back to my memory? If you're following along on your version, you'll see that there are a couple of principles that I've reminded you of, and that is that we grow through our thought life, practices, and relationships. But here's the practice that I want to invite you to engage in this week. Very simple. But again, it's going to take time. I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy. <clears throat> simple, but it's hard. To ideally and preferably, preferably with an actual pen or pencil and a piece of paper. Go old school, okay? The environmental code. Just, just for today, just, just for this week, okay? And to write down three headings. One is, what is this thought or feeling? Second is, what is the lie beneath the thought or feeling? And thirdly, what is the truth? In other words, to actually, to actually, I'm just, I can't help but sense that for many of us, we'd be so surprised at, what's, at what actually comes up if we can just slow down enough to just think and reflect. And it, so as you think about what is, what is this thought, what is the insecurity, what is the fear, what is the frustration, what is it that's making you angry, what is it that's making you uh, insecure with God, whatever the case is. But then secondly, to actually try and, and again, it takes thought, it takes prayerful thought. Okay, what is, what is the lie beneath this? The lie beneath this is that I can't trust God. The lie beneath this is that what if God doesn't come through? Maybe he doesn't love me as much as they say, or maybe he's not as trustworthy. And then to actually write down something that's true, I want you to ideally, ideally, find a passage of Scripture. You can Google it, but just know that probably the first bunch of stuff that comes up is going to be rubbish, but that's okay. Like, when I say rubbish, if it's the Bible, it's Bible, but, but what I mean is it might not be, the context might not be correct. So just check out the context of the verses so you don't just grab some ob promise. But then to actually write that down 
An example might be someone that is, that, where there's this sense from time to time that God is calling you to leadership, but then, but then there's this other part of you that is so aware of how you think other people think about you, and so you feel insecure, and there's a fear, and there's a timidity. Well, then a great passage of Scripture, the, the, the lie underneath it is that you have to be good enough, that, that you have to be impressive enough, that other people have to agree that God can't make up the difference, etc., etc. But the truth that you can write down there from a scriptural point of view is to go to a passage in Timothy where, where clearly Paul is having to encourage Timothy in the very same thing where he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of love, power, and a sound mind. If you read that small little letter, you'll discover that Paul is trying to encourage Timothy with the fact that God has called him. God has given him a gift. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but be an example. So write down the truth. 